Welcome to Think or Swim Live on the Stunt Show, coming to you live from sunny Southern California and heard around the world on the Nahum Siegel Network at NahumSiegel.com and the NSN app. The Stunt Show is heard every Thursday at 1 Eastern, 10 Pacific. We have to mention Pacific because that's where I am, with a cast of rotating hosts that will keep you entertained. Today is my first time sitting in the Stunt Show chair. Really, it's my first time sitting in any radio show host chair. But I hope that uh, you won't notice <laughs> that I'm a novice during this uh, hour here. First, as a matter of introduction, my name is Eliyahu Fink. Aside from hosting a radio show, I'm the rabbi of the Shul on the Beach in Venice, California. Yes, it is as amazing as it sounds. And next time you're in L.A., all you listeners are invited to join us for a Shabbos experience unlike anything you've ever experienced before. Our Shul faces the beach, and as you watch the sunset, Davin, Kabbalat, Shabbat, there's no better way to welcome the Shabbos, and I welcome anybody that is out there to join us for a Shabbos experience. I have a shul on the beach, and I also have a shul on the internet. My blog, thinkorswim.com, and Facebook page are active destinations for conversations about issues facing our community and really anything else that's on my mind and anything else that's on anybody else's mind. And I invite you all to join us there as well. On this show, we will be bringing all those important conversations to the airwaves. My hope is that we'll be able to host meaningful discussions during this hour on a regular basis, and I invite you to join me. Um, there's a way that you can actually join the show, and that's by participating either by messaging me on Facebook or commenting on the Facebook post, which I announced this show on, or even Using the NSN app, you can leave comments on the app, and I'll be checking those periodically. And if there are interesting ideas or thoughts from the listeners, they will definitely be included in our discussion. I definitely love to hear from uh, people out there. Part of what I do and part of what I love to do is to invite discussion. So, of course, if you are out there and you have something to say, do not hesitate to contribute to the conversation. Today's show we'll cover something that is traditionally not a public conversation. But due to recent events, it has been thrust into the public sphere. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had a lot of discussion about the conversion process, the successes of the conversion process and the standards that were instituted by the RCA about seven years ago, the criticism of how the system operates as it does today from people that are participants in the system, people that are observers on the system, all kinds of different um, perspectives that have generated some of the criticism about who's involved, who has um, a say, and who has a stake in the discussion. And there's also been a lot of discussion about what the future of, of conversion should look like and how we should craft the future of our conversion process. In fact, just yesterday, the RCA, which is really the de facto standardized version of conversion that is used in the United States, um, announced the formation of a committee, and that committee will review, and I quote from their website and their press release, its current Geras protocols and standards, which they call the GPS, which is your compass towards God, I guess. Um, so they're reviewing their current Geras protocols and standards conversion process, and suggest safeguards against possible abuses. The press release continues and says, 
the RCA committed to forming this committee following, and I'll paraphrase here, the recent scandal in Washington, D.C., which brought to light the need for a thorough review of GPS to identify changes that will ensure a more effective and appropriate conversion process. So we have clearly a response, an explicit response, to the criticism of the current system from the RCA. And it's an exploration of whether that criticism that they have been feeling and hearing from the public is valid. And I guess they're going to explore the entire process, not just what happened in D.C., but what happens everywhere. And when they explore this process, I anticipate that they will find either that this was um, a scandal that shows that there is very few flaws in the system, but somebody was able to sneak through the cracks in the system and exploit it, which is something that would be very unfortunate, but not indicative of, of, a, of a larger problem that needs to be addressed significantly, where they will find that the process actually does require some adjustment, and they hope to hear um, from the people on the committee what possible changes could be made. Now, a few rabbis are not so keen on the idea of reevaluating the RCA standards and the protocols as they were established by the GPS, um, and actually have public, publicly taken a stand for the status quo. A few prominent rabbis have written about this and are advocating that, excuse me, they are advocating that the, um, the process not be adjusted. Now, most Orthodox Jews who are born Orthodox Jews, um, for them, conversion is a very secretive and mysterious process. Even as a rabbi, I've met with tons of potential converts and we talk, I help them along the first stages of their process. I have to vet them a little bit, see if they're serious. I, I counsel them, answer questions that they have about Judaism or about the process as far as I can. And I help them feel comfortable in our shul, in our community. We have many people that fit into this category that have come through our doors uh, as long as I've been the rabbi there. But once they connect with the Basin, once they are involved with the Beitin that is going to be doing their conversion or they've tried to reach out to that Beitin to do their conversion, I actually know very little about the process. I only hear from them a little bit of feedback here and there, but I don't want to be invasive or invade, or invade their personal space and ask them questions about things that maybe they don't feel comfortable answering. So I just am available for them as a resource, but I don't actually look and try and, um, and, and, and pry any information from them to hear what is actually happening. So... Once they're connected with the Beit Din that's going to be doing their conversion, I really don't know what's, what's going on very much. And like I said, it's a mysterious uh, secret process. So I wanted to learn more. And in anticipation of this program, I reached out to several rabbis that are involved in the conversion process. Um, and I'll be very candid with the listeners. It was not a very easy task to book a guest for this show. There were a lot of people that were interested in talking about it. A lot of people that said that they could contribute to the conversation, but they were not interested really in having a public conversation. They didn't want to appear on the radio. They didn't want to talk about it in the media. And despite the public conversation, this subject remains almost taboo. And I was a little disappointed. Um, but fortunately, one of the rabbis who did actually decline to appear on the show made an excellent recommendation. And I followed through on his recommendation. And I'm happy I did because... We have an excellent guest that will be joining us um, first, and that's why I have invited Rabbi Mori Kelman to help us understand the process of conversion. Give me a little information about who we're going to be speaking with. Uh, Rabbi Kelman is a musmach 
of Yeshiva University, Rabbi Isaac O'Connor Theological Seminary. So he has his Samicha and rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva University. Um, he's also a graduate of the Osgood Hall Law School, so he has a law degree. We share that. And he's been the rabbi of very many congregations uh, in New York, Jerusalem, and has led educational programs around the world, especially for converts, which, by the way, was the first time that he appeared on the uh, Nahum Siegel Network was an interview with Nahum about his trips that he does for converts and convert candidates, where he discussed these trips to Israel. Um, and he has taken programs to Poland, Germany, Russia, Canada, England, and Israel. And he is a founder of and chairman of a Jewish student organization called Kedma, and he directs an Orthodox conversion program in Manhattan. Professionally, he's also worked as a corporate attorney in Manhattan law firm, and now he's a counsel for an investment firm. Clearly very accomplished, well-educated, well-rounded man. And in addition to these professional accolades and accomplishments, also somebody that's intimately involved in the Beitin conversion process and a member of the RCA. So I would like to welcome Rabbi Kelman, and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure. I'll also just point out I wasn't jumping uh, to go on the radio, but I had Rachamim on Rabbi Fink, and uh, yeah, after he told me it was difficult uh-huh. to get people, so I said, okay, I will agree to go on, and uh, I will have a session, hopefully. I appreciate your compassion. It's very, very helpful to me. Uh-huh. Uh, it would be hard to have this conversation without somebody that has this kind of intimate information. So what I've done at this point is basically walk people through the process as far as I know. I know what happens all the way until the conversion candidate actually encounters the Beit Din. Can you tell us what happens after that? What is the process like? What does it feel like? Uh, what is your perception of it from your perspective as a teacher and a person involved? Um, and tell us the story of the candidate for conversion picking up from where I left off. Okay, so just very briefly, just as I've been involved with conversions for over 10 years now. Rabbi Alan Schwartz, the rabbi at Hoestetic, who's really been one of the uh, the main rabbis going back over 20 years, who was involved with conversions, asked me to get involved over 10 years ago, and it's really been one of the, I would say, highlights of my life in the last 10 years. I've had a lot of sipuk nefesh, a lot of tremendous satisfaction from what I've done. So to walk you through very briefly, so the RCA uh, process began about six, seven years ago. So I, ha- I oversee a class, and we have a program for converts, about 30 to 40, perhaps sometimes even more converts at any one time. So the process more or less begins in this way. Uh, somebody will uh, will call me, will email me. Uh, they're interested in conversion. We have an application form. They fill out an application form. I have an interview with them. I get a sense, if I'm especially after doing this for over 10 years, I have a fairly good sense of when people are serious or not. I've interviewed literally hundreds of different people. And assuming that they are serious, they filled out the application form, etc., they begin coming to class. Um, what I tell them, again, this is just my experience, obviously other rabbis do other things, and other Dean may do other things, but what I do is after, I tell them from the beginning, after they begin the program, you know, we'll speak again beyond just getting to know them in the class. We'll sit down formally again in two, three, four months, or, or before that if you want to, and then I'll get a better sense of where you're up to in the program, both in terms of your own commitment, you know, you'll run through a day for me. It's not a test, but basically just a conversation describing what does their Jewish life now look like? What do they do in the morning? Do they make brachot? Do they know the brachot? Are they going to shul every Shabbos? Are they now, have they stopped using their phone and computer? Are they using transportation on Shabbos? You know, basically get a gauge of where they're up to 
in their Jewish life, and uh, then we'll say, okay, you should work on X and Y, and wonderful, they have questions, et cetera, et cetera. Then I'll tell them again, you know, whenever you want to sit down again, or next day, another two, three months, we'll sit down again. And by that point, usually the people coming to me are now walking in off the street, their first exposure to Judaism. Often a lot of them have a, a fairly decent, you know, decent understanding of Judaism. They may have read a number of books, they've gone to some classes, Etc. So after about six, seven months of attending classes, you know, weekly classes for three hours a week approximately, we also have Shabbatonim and other types of programs to integrate them into the Jewish community. So you have a, a good sense of where they're at after about six, seven months, assuming they're at that point, you know, what I would say definitely serious and good candidates to finish this. At that point, I will tell them to reach out to the RCA Beiting. That's the Beiting that I generally work with. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in touch with them on a, on a fairly consistent basis, the New York Beiting. And they will then set up a meeting with the coordinator, coordinator of that Beiting, who will sit down with them. Um, usually after that first meeting, uh, then the coordinator of the Beiting and I will have a conversation about where the person is, get feedback from me. And assuming in, in the general scenario, when there aren't any major issues, the person is serious and he's, he or she has conveyed that to the coordinator of the RCA bait team, then that, the coordinator will then set up a meeting with the entire bait team, the, the, the panel of three, other, of three rabbis, it will be the coordinator plus the two other rabbis on that particular bait team. The New York system has about 10 to 15 different rabbis, a pool of rabbis, and because they're all volunteers, it's very important to point that out, the people who are involved with this including myself, are all volunteers, give up a tremendous amount of their time and uh, sacrifice, etc. So just you know, keep that in mind with all the criticism going on right now. The people, the vast, vast majority of the people involved are really doing you know, really God's work, which is what a rabbi hopefully should be doing. And uh, so it's a question of them putting together the baiting. The convert, the prospective convert, will meet with the entire baiting. You know, usually the two other rabbis will do the bulk of the conversational, it can be a 45-minute, an hour discussion, and then, again, sometimes that baiting, after speaking with me or just on the room, will say, okay, we want, you know, it's clear that the person needs to work on X and Y, they're not, you know, they're not 100% Shomer Shabbos yet, they're, it's clear they're, they're brachot, you know, they're not so familiar with something, etc., you know, work on this for the next two months and then come back in. Or they may say, you know, this person is really amazing, you know, I'll, I'll be in touch with them to, to uh stress that as well, and then it's a question of just setting up the time to go to the mikvah. And, um, so it really depends. It's definitely a subjective in terms of the, per, the, the candidate involved, um, whether it's a, a, a candidate who's coming just for their own, you know, uh, from the beginning, you know, they're on their own, uh, from their own interests. Occasionally, you know, we, we do have people involved in relationships. That makes it a little more complicated, and that can delay things definitely. So it really, again, it really is subjective. Um, so, but that's the basic, the basic format. The process is, with me at least, is interview, application, coming to class, seeing where they're up to. When it's clear that they're very serious and the, the goal, the finish line, is somewhere on the horizon, setting up the initial meetings with the with the RCA, Rabbinical Council of America, and then basically at that point they really take over the process. I'm involved to the extent that I answer questions, and I can sometimes uh, advocate for the, for the prospective convert. Again, the Beit Din doesn't have the, the time, obviously, that I put into 
with in terms of getting to know the students. So they sometimes I need to to get involved to, to like I said, advocate and just let the patient know that this person is doing X and Y. Sometimes again, usually I think from my from my experience, the the prospective convert is nervous at these meetings and may not have the best quote unquote performance in terms of remembering things or even just just discussing things. They get nervous in front of it. People who are in this process obviously have a love for Judaism and they want to become Jewish. And it's uh, when they know that these conversations are very critical to that, it can create a lot of, uh, of nervousness. And so sometimes, again, they may not convey who they really are. And um, so sometimes, again, I have to just add my own sense of who the people are to give the baby you know, a wider picture. Sometimes get other people involved. You know, we. I often. Last night I had a for a, a student who was just finished a couple of years ago. Come to see to my class. You know, and he was very uh, machbeat. He wrote down every single thing that he did when the course of the conversion. And you know, he suggested all the students do that as well. I think that's a good idea. Also, keeping a record of what you did, then you can show the baiting. You know, on this Shabbos I went here. This Shabbos I went there. And it's, it's a wonderful I think, diary a person can keep just to look back on their whole their whole process as well. So having other people involved can be very helpful as well. In other words, people from the community. We try to set up people with families as well. So the families who know these, these people can also call the basin and say, you know, this person comes to my home every second Shabbos and they're really very serious and, you know, I know them well and trust me, you know, uh, from my experience with these people, these are very honest and good people. So having other people involved can also very, very much help, especially with the process of the RCA. You know, when the local rabbi is not doing the baiting, like it was until a few years ago, it, obviously people still do that, but in terms of the RCA system, it can definitely be helpful to have other people that the RCA can call, and they welcome that. You know, the, the, the RCA baiting very much wants to hear from if there's a local rabbi that the shul had davenat, obviously that person needs to be involved as well to say the person comes on Shabbos and they, we have them over on Shabbos and they're involved in the community. So any additional edut, testimony, can definitely help in the process as well. Thank you. And I, I just wanted to ask a couple of questions to clarify two things. First of all, um, I'm confused a little bit about the actual discussions that happen between the candidate and the person that's going to be actually doing the conversion. So there's a lot of talk about these conversations about whether they're serious or where they stand or whether they're stable and what do, do you do you have any inside information about like what kinds of questions are asked if if every if anybody has complained about questions that they felt were inappropriate or questions that you felt were invasive just is there anything that is potentially an issue in in that respect um, and just if you can give us a little bit of insight into that I think that would be helpful to our listeners. Yeah, in, in my experience with New York Basin, no. I mean, again, the rabbis uh, involved are, are very sensitive, compassionate people. Again, you know, what I tell the, the prospective convert is always that this system is not meant to hurt you, it's not meant to delay you. It's meant because this is a very serious decision you're going to be making. You know, this isn't getting a degree. It's not something that you get and you can decide a year later, you know what, eh, I don't want to do this anymore. You're becoming Jewish because we, as the rabbis or the teachers or the the friends, we love Judaism and we believe that this is a very serious thing, and we believe that God commanded us to do these mitzvot. So, when you accept to become a Jew, when you go to the mikveh, uh, there's no going back, and we want to be sure that this is right for you. Right. It's, it's meant to protect you. That's you know, there's a lot, again, there's been a lot of misinformation. I think in general, again, as you mentioned before, a lot of ignorance. Just people don't know what goes on 
this conversion, but I can speak from my own experience, my own personal experience, and working with the New York Bay team. Nobody has nefarious uh, intentions here. Right, of course. People want to protect the convert because it's a serious thing, and we want to be sure that the people are not going to regret it six months afterwards. So, yeah, it's, it's not getting a degree. It's not taking a few tests and saying, okay, we passed the test and that's it. So in terms of the questions, again, I've ne- I haven't pers- I, I've not heard personal, personally complaints about the types of questions. It's basically the initial consultation, as it were, is a conversation. It's similar to the conversation I have when the, con- the prospective convert meets with me. Tell me about your background, um, your family, your school. What is your family's reaction to this? Your friends, who are you friendly with? And right, then, so very so, general questions, basically. Very general to get to know the person, to get to know the psychological aspect of the person as well, and then to gauge, again, there's no written test per se, but to get a sense, okay, now we move into more practical areas. Tell me a little bit about what you do on Shabbos. If you want to have a, if you invite people over for Shabbos lunch, you know, how are you going to prepare food for them? What's right. the bracha that you say on a strawberry? You know, things like that. Very, very like basic you. stuff. Okay, so now my second question about this just process, because then we're going to turn to our next guest and we'll, we'll bring her into the conversation, is what happens when the Beitian says, you know, I don't think that your, uh, your candidate is, is okay and I don't think that this person should be converting. How do they break that news to the person and, wh- and what, what typically happens after that? Honestly, I haven't really had that scenario. You know, we've had scenarios where people are delays because either, again, there's a sense that they're not yet have that commitment or mm-hmm. that their own life is very busy right now and they're just not able to devote the amount of time needed. You know, again, we're not talking about stopping your job. People who do this continue with their life. Right. So I, it too. seems to me like it, if people stop the process, it's usually like almost attrition as opposed to rejection. Yeah. There, I, I okay. haven't, again, per, I, I, you know, I, I've had a couple of cases where I personally asked people to leave because there was some... Serious you know, red flags, warning signs, etc. Yeah, like in terms okay. of like this, uh, but in terms of, um, I've never had the scenario where where, some, where the Beitian has said to me, "This person shouldn't convert because we don't like." We found answer. something pro- troubling or whatever. Right. Again, it, okay. it, you know, usually at that, but like I said, I, with me again, talking from my own experience, you know, I personally only send them to the Beitian. Again, they can go on their own; they don't have to listen to me. But I suggest to them at least that they should. Wait till you know we've had a few of those discussions, and I get it because I know the way the Beitin generally works, and it just it makes more sense to begin the process when they're already quite serious, and you know they can see, like I said, the horizon. In the exactly. Okay, so now I want to bring in our next guest, um, and, and and we're asking her by Kelman to stay on so that we can have a, a three-way discussion here. Um, our next guest is, well, actually I had invited, and um, originally it was it was publicized that. Um, Bethany Mandel was going to be joining us, and Bethany made a little bit of news for herself when she published an article in the Times of Israel called you know, Bill of Rights for Converts, and um, fortunately, uh, Bethany is, all, well, fortunately for her, unfortunately for us, she's also a, a mother of a young child, and domestic duties pulled her away from today's today's appearance, so we invited um, a good friend of Bethany's, actually, but also somebody else that has a lot of experience going through the process of conversion, but also helping people who are going through the process and gathering information about the process. So we'd like to welcome Ms. Skylar Bader. And Skylar is a startup lawyer by profession. She converted to Judaism three years ago. I actually met Skylar during the process when she visited the show on the beach for a Shabbos a few years ago. Uh, Skylar publishes a very well-known blog called You're Not Crazy. And it was really designed as as, as a blog to talk about 
the issues and the challenges that come up during uh, the conversion process. She's become a valuable resource and has hosted this community for converts, conversion candidates, and other interested parties in the process. So I would like to now welcome Skylar, and um, I want to just say hi first. Welcome to the show. Hi. Great to be here. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Short notice. And now I'm assuming you heard of a Kelman's description of the process. It was very, very general, but I was wondering if that felt, if that felt familiar to you, if this sounded like the way that you experienced it as the candidate and as people, a person that speaks to the candidates. Well, yes, because I went through the New York Beijing, um, but I think there are some key differences. And I was with another Beijing before I was with the New York Beijing, very different. I think the main difference for the majority of conversion candidates in America um, compared to what Rabbi Kelman described is they have a very good um, support process. They have classes. They have people who are willing to host and kind of adopt conversion candidates in the process. We have all of these pieces of the becoming from puzzle together in the care of world, but it's really lacking for conversion candidates, especially outside of New York City and to some degree in L.A. Um, most people do not have a formal tutor. I was um, self-taught entirely through my conversion wow. process, through reading, asking. Um, I got connected to people on um, the Internet, like you, Rob, I think, um, because I ran up to such roadblocks in trying to find education, um, I had um, community rabbis who wouldn't answer my questions unless I raised them in a public class available to the community. It's not structured, really. Um, but I think that, on the other hand, the New York Satan does handle the emotional aspects of conversion very respectfully, and not a lot of other rabbis do in this world. You to some degree, invasive questions are necessary in the conversion process. You need to ask uncomfortable questions when you have a boyfriend um, or a girlfriend. I should be equal uh, to both genders there. You have to ask very personal questions. What's your relationship with your parents? How do your parents, how did your parents react to this? And in average conversation, for instance, at a Shabbos table, these questions do come up, but that's an inappropriate place to ask them, uh, which is something that Bethany brought up in the Converse Bill of Rights. But from a Beit-Din perspective, you need to know these questions, especially if there's a significant other and um, there's going to be a wedding at the end, whether you're already legally married or not. There's going to have to be a separation process of probably three months to make sure that the woman's not pregnant. Those are uncomfortable questions to ask, but they're also necessary. On right. the other hand, you don't need to ask about details about that sex life. You don't need to ask um, other prurient details. Right. There's, a, there's certainly a line that can be crossed <laughs> that would make things uncomfortable, and um, certainly we know that um, those lines maybe haven't crossed. So... I wanted to now see if we could uh, focus the discussion actually on Bethany's article because I think that it resonated with a lot of people. When an article goes viral and, uh, you know, it's, it's it's an apt metaphor, like for the things that a lot of people are nervous about as far as the the, the, the medical concerns that we have with um, another 
uh, potential uh, illness that would go viral. Um, but the right. idea is that something that catches fire on the internet really it, it spreads across, you know, all people, denominations, and uh, and and commitments to Judaism. And uh, you know, Bethany's article was, I think, it's been shared on on, the, on just on Facebook fifteen thousand times or so, which means that a lot of people have read it, and that means that it resonated. So. I wanted to go back to Rabbi Kelman for a second. I know that you read the article, and I know that you had some uh, opinions on it. If you could just give us one of the criticisms that um, that that Bethany described in the article that you felt was valid, um, and then I'll ask um, um, Skylar to maybe elaborate on what what that means to the person that's going through the process. Yeah, overall, I agreed with most of what she said here. Again, this was her experience, and like I said, it's a very subjective experience. But overall, uh, a lot of what basically Almost everything she said, I think, uh, has either tremendous validity or at least some validity here. Uh, I could pick out a lot of different things, but in terms of uh, just focus on on uh, on one thing that she stressed was that the the converts and again, even the word convert, you know, there's a whole tension here. Even you know, these people are Jews, you know, they convert. They're Jews. So I, I actually I have a problem even using the word convert because. The person is Jewish. Once they go to the mikvah, they're Jewish like I'm Jewish, like you, Rabbi Fink, and like Moshe Rabbeinu, etc. So even, you know, I, I, there's always that tension about talking about converts, and, you know, I'm very, very careful with my students never to talk about them as converts when I introduce them to people. If they want to do that, that's fine. Now, having said that, that's, we don't have another way of describing it, so the one of the points was, you know, that converts deserve to be treated with the same love and care as Jewish orphans or anybody Jewish from the moment we become Jewish. So, yeah, a thousand percent. And, like, exactly the point. They're, they're Jewish. They're not converts anymore. But because we know the Torah is so careful, you know, the Gemara and Bab as I'm sure you're aware, mentions that either it's 36 times or 46 times how the Torah warns us to be so sensitive to... To gay reef, the convert, so of course we have to show tremendous love. And that's one of the things that I personally try to do a lot is community education. We try to find mentors for our students. I've had a number of community events, you know, where I've invited a larger community to hear from converts about their experience, to educate them. We have Shabbatonim every two or three months. We set them up with families. So 100%, there needs to be a tremendous amount of love, sensitivity, again, to only to the extent that the converts themselves are, are okay with people knowing that their converts should not be exposed as well. But yes, we have to do a much better job of, of caring and showing tremendous love. And it's, you know, this is one of the tremendous ironies with what's going on in the conversion world in the last 10 years with, with Israel and here. You know, it's the area where the Torah is so telling us we have to be so careful. And here we are doing all types of things where... You know we're hurting converts, so all the and there can be you know, difficulties, but a lot more to say. But I'll let you continue. Okay, so so just to be specific, the the, the specific issue that you were talking about is that um, it doesn't feel like the, the the convert is made to feel as welcome as they should in the Jewish community, and and I think that's the specific um, specifically that's the criticism that you were that you were, that you were that you were addressing. Is it just is that correct? Yeah, the one the one specific right. one. Okay, great. So let's turn to Skylar, and uh, I want you to explain to us maybe a little bit how it feels when, when that doesn't go well. I mean, I, I know that you had two experiences, and at one point it probably went better than the other, but just tell us a little bit about what it feels like to be somebody that is, you know, so desperately trying to become part of something that yet the thing in, the thing itself is not uh, welcoming you in, in the way that you would expect somebody that's um, trying to, like, you know, join a group that's 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 
reluctant to have you join them? Well, there's a lot of specific things that come up because you're a convert. Um, like Bethany had listed, when you're making some cards, you don't know what you're doing necessarily. You don't have the support. And I think that actually after conversion is usually when it's better. People begin to forget that you're different. But people always know because it's a, or want to know because it's a good story and they're interested. Um, but not everyone is so willing to talk about it. But before conversion, that's much harder. Um, there's a huge potential for emotional abuse, intentional or unintentional, um, primarily because people um, will be quite open that most of the interpersonal misquote don't apply before you convert because you're not a Jew. Lushan Tara does not apply. Um, you don't, they feel that they can say things about you that they would never say about someone. Now, how do you know this? Is this something you felt because somebody has said things to you directly or other people have contacted you and said, I heard this or like, what's the, or you've heard about other, other potential converts. What's the process in which you've discovered that this is a problem? I discovered it in my own situation, but it's also a larger problem of bullying. We have a big problem with bullying in the conversion candidate um, world because people hear this idea, oh, we have to discourage the conversion candidate, but we fail to realize that's the rabbi's job. That's not the local yenta down the street's job. (laughs) Um, Fair enough. It's not her job at a Shabbos meal to say, you know, no one's going to marry you, right? That's that's just inappropriate. but you, I think what's more detrimental is you have people within the community feeling that they need to report anything to the rabbi that seems suspicious, and maybe they don't have all the facts. And maybe the rabbi just takes that person's word and doesn't verify it or do any of the other things that would be required by the laws of Lashon Hara. Interesting. Um, and worse, you have um, a friend of mine has a great analogy for conversion candidate on conversion candidate bullying. She likens it to um, spies in Russia during the Soviet era. The idea that if you can turn in someone else for doing something wrong, the government is going to look more fondly on you. Mm. So you have conversion candidates who see someone else do something, and maybe they're not so knowledgeable. Maybe they don't realize that's actually allowed on Shabbos, or maybe that person's not to full Shabbos observance yet, and that's just where they are at this moment, but they feel the need to go tattle on the rabbi and like a little dog and say, please pat me on the head. <laughs> uh, it's very much a, a um, not attention-seeking behavior, which is what some people tend to call it. It's, it's a desire to please because they feel that they have so little control over the process that this is one aspect that they can put something in their favor. Right. Um, they can show them what a good conversion candidate they are. How committed they are because they're so they're so committed that they're willing to like they're they're actually on the alert for anybody that's doing anything that's not perfectly correct. Yeah, and I think that being raised in the Bible Belt, I see a lot of that. You mean Brooklyn? <laughs> no, I was uh, <laughs> born and raised in Tennessee, um, at, in an atheist family. So I was outside this conservative Christian community and was very ostracized in many ways. My childhood is a lot like a secular Jewish childhood would have been in the Bible Belt. And you see people who like find kind of a religious joy in pointing out how other people have failed. And right. it's 
it's very comforting to them saying, oh, I would never do that. Right. It's a false sense of piety because if you can show how somebody else is failing, then of course they're worse than you and that means that you're okay. Yeah. And I think that the lack of control that people feel within the process breeds that kind of thing because Mm. it's like a teenager who rebels and just rebels just to feel some kind of control in their life. Right. I actually, Um, you know, is a, is a situation I know of, which like it's an analogy, but it's interesting where a child, a young child, who is, you know, already toilet trained and using the bathroom like uh, like a regular child would, and then something traumatic had happened in the child's life and something with the parents, and it was um, very easy to see how that had actually caused this child to revert back to like not being able to t- to be toilet trained and and to not use the bathroom like a regular child would, and the understanding of this from the psychological perspective is that a child sees their world crumbling around them. They have no control over anything that they feel like the only thing that they can control is like whether they'll use the bathroom or not. And it's a great analogy because like when people feel this way, they actually will do things that are only worthy of being done in the bathroom. And it's, it's, (laughs) it's ugly and it's disgusting in a certain way. But when people feel like they don't have control, a lot of times they will use whatever small way they can exercise control, no matter how, how disgusting it might be. And so then I would like to know like what you mean by control though, like what, what could be done or what is it, what is the proper way to make the convert feel that even though they're, they don't have control really, it's not really their choice because they have to be accepted, but how to make them feel like they have control and maybe how can we give some of that control back to them? I think a lot of it is just feeling involved with the process rather than these people in a room next door to you are making these decisions and when they come out and talk to you, they just say, okay, come back in three months. Um, a lot of people that I've spoken to feel that they don't get specific feedback. They don't mm. say, come back in this amount of time um, or how long it's projected to take. I mean, that's, that's hard to measure. It's an art form. But you can say a year or three years. You can say three months or a year. Like You can generalize, presuming that you're going to go on the same trajectory. Right, so the, um, the, the limbo state is something that contributes to the lack of control, you think? Yeah, it's um, also just having a standard curriculum and knowing that if you um, learn with someone X, Y, Z, and so on, you know that once you finish the curriculum, you've met some kind of standard. It gives you something to check off. And we, right. psychologically, we love to check things off and to know... Exactly. Especially that you're lawyers. making physical process, like physical, physical progress. Right. So you know, maybe uh, maybe because we can't, as you know, as Rabbi Kelman had said, we can't just say if you do a certain thing, then you get the degree, and now you're the convert. But maybe there should be some sort of certif- certificate that's offered to people that have finished the educational aspect of the conversion process, and say, okay, now when you're ready to commit, and we feel that your commitment is sincere, you're prepared. So at least the, the educational process feels like there is a start, there is a middle, and there's an end. I don't think there necessarily needs to be a certificate or anything. I think that intelligent, reasonable people will know that it's not just your education, that you have these interpersonal issues, these um, communal issues, um, your personal behavior. But it gives you, I think that if we give people more of a sense of control in the areas where we can allow them to be a bigger participant in their own process, I think that'll help give them the confidence and the feeling that they can commit to the community um, because they feel the community is committed to them, which I think was a great point that Bethany brought up, that 
most people, in my experience and in hers, don't trust rabbis once they get out. And this should be the person that we feel we can go to and we come out. And I, I can count on one hand the amount of rabbis I trust in this world, especially wow. because now, of no, my no, conversion process. Right now, when you say that, it actually triggers in my mind maybe that it's somewhat of a response to the very, um, I wouldn't say invasive, but the intimate process of dunking in the mikvah. So in other words, I could, I could, in my head, it makes sense that if somebody, even if you had a good relationship throughout the process with the rabbi that's doing the conversion, this pro, this process of now going to the mikvah and in a state of undress, being witnessed as going through that, um, through that process in front of somebody, that could make you feel uncomfortable around that person and it feels like maybe that could contribute to the lack of trust. Now, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I wanted to hear from you maybe just to explain a little bit about what it's like in that moment, um, what actually happens, and if that might contribute to what what we were just talking about with regard to the trust issues. Well, I think that that is analogous to um, how comfortable women are with bringing a bedika to the local rabbi, that same kind of exposure. But I don't think the mikvah is really where that distrust comes from. I think it's the whole process. You're bearing your soul and everything you've ever done, in many cases, to someone who's essentially a stranger to you right. and has an immense amount of control over your life. And most people don't have a strong connection or a strong relationship with even the sponsoring rabbi. Like you described um, with your own experience, you don't really know what to do or how to guide someone. And I would say that's pretty common among sponsoring rabbis in America. Um, there's a large number of rabbis who refuse to be sponsoring rabbis precisely because the GPS protocol is so unclear about what that requires. And mm. the conversion candidates can't become members of the shul, so they're not paying for the rabbi's salary. It's extra work. Um, so I think that it's more that there is a total lack of relationship or it's, it's a one-sided relationship that you have to bear everything. Right. And that, that doesn't make sense because well. when, a person is, when a person's in a relationship where they feel completely at the mercy of the other person, um, they know that that person controls their life and that could uh, definitely breed a lot of mistrust. Now, I want to now focus on something, uh, maybe another aspect of this, which I wanted to ask you, Skylar, if there was, um, if there was, um, no, I'm sorry, I want to now turn to Rabbi Kelman and ask Rabbi Kelman if there was a criticism that you felt was not fair and maybe not universal and there was something that you wish that maybe people knew that even though it was the experience that Bethany had during the process, this is something that was very unique to her and not something that you've experienced or seen as a potential problem. Yes. So first of all, I just wanted well, to, uh, to thank Skylar. And uh, Skylar, you're a great role model and like with any convert that I've worked with, these are amazing people and uh, we should really be in awe of them and give them tremendous um, and appreciation of what they do. So thank you, Skyler. Completely agree. Thank you for that, Rebecca Elman. So, um, yeah, so again, and, and, and continuing on that note, so in terms of what Bethany wrote, I have no, I'm, I'm not here to criticize her at all. Like I said, I agree with almost everything she wrote there. And even if I didn't, this is her experience. And as we described before, we have to be incredibly careful about, about not causing any stress to any converse. So she has the right, of, obviously, to, to describe what she said. Having said that, the one thing that I would uh, comment on, she, Bethany writes, how, just to quote her, we have no safe governing body or individual to turn to we feel, if we feel we have been victimized, manipulated, or lied to by our rabbis. Um, so that is uh, just from my own experience. Um, I'm putting this out there, anybody who's listening or anybody who will listen to this, um, if you feel that that's your situation, please contact me. 
I am putting out there, and there are a lot of other people there uh, who you can turn to, who will help you. Like I said before, I, I, you know, the situation that is the cause of this discussion right now is incredibly unique. It's such a crazy thing. Nobody could ever think about it. Most rabbis, yes, if, um, they're very busy, and perhaps they should do better to, to reach out to, to converts, but there are a lot of people out there who do want to help, who have tremendous amount. Maybe the Maybe for another show, I'll describe something I'm hoping to do very soon in terms of addressing uh, I've seen in the pipeline for a while already to address many of these issues here as well. But there are uh, there are people out there, and you know, just to put a little, you know, we're talking, thank God, about people who are adults here. So you know, I tell my conversion students as well: when you're in the process, think of this as if you this is a job you really want to get. It's something that you're passionate about, and the same way that you wouldn't be shy about. That's speaking up for yourself when it comes to a job or something else. Dude, yes, we're rabbis, or they're rabbis, and that we should respect them. But be passionate about it. And if somebody says no to something, you can push back and you can say, you know, why is that? You know, please explain to me more. And you know, most Batidin, I think, if they're worth anything, will, will respond in a proper way. So while there may not be yet, as of yet, an official governing body, as it were, um, there are people out there and. So just have to look for it. Like I said, I personally pledge for myself, anybody out there, you can write to me, conversion, mechina, conversion, M-E-C-H-I-N-A, at outlook.com. If you have any issues, I will be happy to do my best to, to help you through any, as Bethany wrote, victimization, manipulation, or, or, or chas v'shalom, you know, lies. That's very kind of your comments. I mean, as quickly, Scholar, because I want to get to one more thing before we uh, wrap this up. Um, and, you know, time flies when you're having fun. And uh, I wish we could do this for like, you know, six hours. We could probably talk about this stuff forever. But and my producer's yeah, shaking his head. No, you can't. So my question is whether uh, you feel that having a person like Rabbi Kelman available would be helpful or if you felt that actually it's necessary to have a governing body that actually has the authority above the Beit Din. Oh, that's a good question. I am not sure, but I'm one of those people who thought that there was some oversight. I complained about something within my bait bin, my first bait bin, and Wait, so I was let's, 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 let's slow down. Who did you complain to? Um, well, technically, the RCA came to me uh, because there had been other accusations floating around, and so um, the person who investigated my my complaint was actually Rabbi Sundell, which seems very ironic in retrospect. And I don't I'm not know familiar with that what name. the yes. And to this day, I don't know what happened because of that. I felt very listened to. I uh, he was my knight in shining armor. I felt that someone was finally listening to me. They they uh, he was able to validate that what happened to me was not what should have happened. And right. I don't know whether he investigated it. I don't know whether he spoke <laughs> to the people that were involved. But just having even someone within, to listen to you is a lot, and that's what Rabbi Kelman's offering, as even if you wouldn't have yeah. the authority to actually, um, you know, like, sanction or uh, discipline of somebody that's that's being complained against. The fact that there's somebody even just to, to talk to is is a huge um, a huge boon because you feel like you're not alone. And by the way, I, I, well, I offer the same thing, and I've actually been part of this conversation with people that are converting and I can't do anything. I, I don't have any authority over the conversion process at all, but I do have the ability to uh, to be there and to listen. And I, I offer the same thing if anybody wants to talk about 
the trials and difficulties or challenges they've encountered or possible complaints, I am available and it's very easy to find me, whether it's in person or it's online. Um, and, I, and I thank true. you both for your, your insight and for, for your help with this. And I want to close with one thing and hopefully we'll have a time to hear from both of you for just another moment. Um, so at, at the start of this, we talked about some rabbis feeling that the, the reevaluation process, this committee that's going to be looking at this, uh, the GPS and seeing if there's something that can be changed. There are people that are, that are opposed to this um, process. They, they want to leave it as, as status quo. They're standing up for the status quo. And, you know, one of the arguments that's, 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 that's given for this position is that, you know, a lone wolf, somebody that's acting on their own, that's doing things that actually violate the protocols, is not a reason to change the protocols. It's just maybe a reason to, like, enforce the protocols or to be more involved in the process. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's a, a good solution to these rabbis to actually, um, you know, step back and start again and look at what we can do differently, what we can do better. They feel like what we've done is, is sufficient. And, and then, you know, once once you start making that argument, you start to think about, well, where is this coming from and who are the people that are behind this impetus for change? And then maybe you look at people that are from a more liberal branch of Orthodox Judaism, and maybe it's the people that want to have uh, rabbis that are more liberal involved in the process. Maybe they want to have women involved in the process, which at this point they are not. Um, and, and then it becomes a, a question of whether the agenda is acceptable. And we get into this whole discussion about who and why we would who, who would want these changes and why we would want them. Um, so I just wanted to, to, to talk about that for a moment. And, and in my opinion, um, the, the, way, the way this works is that it doesn't actually have to be a logical connection. In other words, it doesn't have to be that the problems that we have or the problems that we encountered are actually things that are going to be addressed by the solutions that are provided or that there will be changes that will make things that would be been able to prevent the problem. Um, but but my, my perspective is that there's too much possibility for abuse. There's too many problems that have occurred through the process, uh, not just in this case, but in other cases as well. And because of that, I think it's important that we um, do the best we can to make people feel comfortable. And even if it doesn't actually do anything specific, it doesn't actually logically or technically change things, there is tremendous value in incorporating more perspectives and more views in the process. And it's possible that it, we, we, we would not be able to prevent the, the kinds of abuses that occurred. And it's possible that even if we had the people that are going to now be involved, which include women and include a Yoetzat Halakha, which is a female rabbinic advisor, and the people that are um, more possibly at risk of being abused in this process, having uh, a greater influence and a greater stake in this discussion, uh, it's possible that we wouldn't be able to prevent future abuse. But it feels different. It feels different because those people feel like they're being represented, they're being heard, and they're feeling empowered, and they're feeling like what they're doing is something that is a process which they can be involved in as opposed to being somebody that the process happens to them. And so therefore, I don't think it matters really if the new protocols will actually change or prevent something like this from happening. But what I do think matters most is that we take into account the experiences and the feelings of people that have not had a voice in this conversation. And it's sad. We think about it. You know, it's it's uh, 2014. And, and uh, when you think about like, Maybe somebody in the RCA could help give some perspective to this entire process. And when you, when you, and you look at the RCA, well, actually, there are no women in the RCA. So there's an entire group, a rabbinic body, which by definition um, is made up of men only. And because of that, if you have a group of people that are part of the RCA making decisions or setting policy, it's by default going to have to be men only. And I think that that is an important thing to address. Now, it doesn't have to be that women can come into the RCA. That's not the point to here. The point here is that... If you're going to have a discussion about things that affect women and they are 
Um, and there should be, and there is no valid reason to not allow them to have a voice in the discussion. I think it's an obligation that we have to include them. And so this new committee, although it may not actually have authority, and although it may not actually be made up of rabbis that can actually change everything, the fact that they are giving a voice and an opportunity to women that are committed to Orthodox Judaism, these are not women that are trying to subversively change Orthodox Judaism or make it into something that it's not. They're trying to keep it. They're trying to have the best possible experience doing it. It gives them an opportunity to try and be part of that process. And I think that that just changes the game. It doesn't matter even if it changes um, or prevents things from happening in the future. It changes the entire um, the entire ten- tenor of the discussion because now we have included people that used to be on the outside and now they're on the inside. So we have only a couple of minutes left. I wanted to hear quickly from Rabbi Kelman on that particular aspect. If you think, and just if you think that it, it it's true that having women involved in this process and having people a little bit from the more liberal side of Orthodox Judaism might actually help people feel more comfortable and that would make them more confident in the process and it would make for a better experience for everyone. There's two quick comments. So first of all, to say that there are no women involved in the process I think is not 100% accurate. I can tell you within our program, for example, I have a teacher, Fabia Praminger, who also devotes many hours and she's very, in, very involved and I'll have her discuss the quote-unquote women's issues because things that are not appropriate, I think, for me to discuss directly with women. She will do that. My wife occasionally will, will, will speak to the women as well about and some of the more, uh, quote-unquote, women's issues as well. And I think in most scenarios, again, I can't speak for every single baiting and every single convert, but hopefully there are women involved as teachers, etc., and, and they will also, at least in our experience, and with New York baiting, they will they will be in touch also with the baiting. So perhaps right. on a formal level, like is being discussed right now, um, women haven't been involved, but they've definitely been very involved in the process. So right. I just feel like that yeah. it, it's 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 a feeling that is expressed by women in this situation. And it's true that, as you're saying, there are teachers and there are people that are involved, but to them it doesn't feel that way. And that's something we have to acknowledge yeah. and address, in my yeah, opinion. No, so, so can, but, but to, in terms of the, the specific issue right here, yeah. So I do believe, and I, I think the RCA has, from my knowledge, they've been trying to put together a committee to look at things you know, preceding this whole issue as well. So yeah, they announced the committee last night, actually, and there are no, no, many women no, included. No, 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 I know they announced it last night, but I'm saying I, before even this whole scandal, um, I'm pretty sure that they have been trying to put together a committee as well because they had heard different issues and they wanted to be proactive about, unfortunately, this preempted everything and uh, really accelerated and put things into motion. Bottom right. line, though, yes, I do agree that uh, I think it's very important to have women and to have Gay Reem, as they do, at least I think two of the, the committee members are yes. are Jews by choice. Again, that whole tension, I don't like calling them by it. They shouldn't be called. They're, they're, they are Jews. But, okay, they happen to have converted as well. Right. In any event, I agree with that as well. Okay, so let me hear quickly from Skylar about uh, this particular issue. How do you think it would help? Well, I think it can be summed up as if I want my feelings validated, I'll hire a therapist. I don't need the RCA to validate my feelings. Um, I think that there should be changes that come about from this. And contrary to the works that I've seen published in opposition to this panel, I don't think that they're there to change the halacha. It's about basically codifying Derek Eretz, about being kind, being um, able to support people emotionally, which is kind of a shift we have seen in secular culture in the rise of sexual harassment education in the workplace. It's kind of like a from orthodox, uh, from conversion version of that. Right. And nothing says that these recommendations are going to be binding in any way, shape, or form. 
Right. This could just be a bunch of talk for nothing. And expectations could change as well, so people can um, can feel differently. All right. And I appreciate true, your, but, the um, criticism of, of what of what I suggested because you're right. It is true that validation is important, but it's also something that we don't need from the RCA. I just happen to think that well, it might help the overall uh, tenure and, and and flavor of the discussion. So now I want to thank Rabbi Kalman and. Uh, Skyler for joining us and for being such an important voice in this discussion. Uh, you definitely helped il- illuminate a lot of the process for me and I'm sure for all of our listeners. And um, I wanted to thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you for helping people join the Jewish people in the proper way, Rabbi Kelman. And thank you for joining us, Skyler. We love having you. And um, we thank we you. want we want more people to feel um, empowered and, and comfortable in this in this process. Uh, before we say say goodbye for the day. I want to thank, um, of course, Nahum Siegel and the entire network for inviting me here and for having me um, as a host here. Thank you to all the listeners for joining us today. Thank you to all the people who are commenting um, on Facebook and wherever else that I, I got your messages, and hopefully we covered the things that you were interested in hearing. Um, until next time, uh, that's all. And I leave you with uh, one of my favorite songs from uh, one of my favorite artists, um, Don't, Stop, Don't Stop Giving Love by Elie Schwebel. Kept you inside all alone